For those of you who are new to <clears throat> Dharma talks, it's not like listening to a lecture or a, sch a scholastic presentation. There's some similarity. But it's an attempt um, to not just convey information, but to point in a certain direction. Uh, and essentially, that direction is for you to look inside. Um, <clears throat> and it's a practice in and of itself. That is, listening is a very high art. Perhaps you think you're already a good listener. Some people think they are. Start paying attention as to how you listen. I don't mean just here. But for the moment, let's assume it's a very wonderful, inspiring Dharma talk. Great. But there's a good chance, a very good chance, I'd bet on it, there are always going to be some people who don't think so. Oh, no, he's not going to start talking about when I was in Korea, when I was in Japan, when I was in India, <laughs> when I was in Thailand again. No, not his growing up in Brooklyn stories. Enough. I've heard that one. Can he get some new material? And there will be some who are new. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> What's the word that kids use now? Awesome, awesome. Like it's awesome. Like. Um, but if you see it as a practice, you can't lose, because whether it's a rotten talk or a decent one, uh, pay attention to your mind, to the listening. See how the mind works, agreeing, disagreeing, going off on a tangent, making up your own Dharma talk based on something <laughs> that was said here, which is superior to what you're hearing. Uh, so that it's very much an integral part of practice, which is the theme that Michael and I are, are emphasizing. Michael used the phrase non-fragmented. Do you recall, right, last night? So <clears throat> this approach to practice is one uh, which is an attempt for you to see that uh, meditation is not simply a bag full of techniques and methods and special forms at special places. It is that too, of course. But more and more, it's a way of living. Not a way of living in terms of an ideology where everyone is marching in lockstep. Quite the contrary. It's a way of living which puts a high premium on inquiry. In other words, there are certain methods and tools which enable the mind to refine itself so that it's more capable of looking into itself. Because without understanding the mind, you can't really understand what the Buddha is talking about. And by the mind, I mean your mind. There's one teaching which says it all. But I can't seem to remember it. <laughs> ah. The mind itself is the Buddha. The mind itself. Whereas you don't need to look anywhere else. It's all in your mind. And this is designed to take us on an inner journey. It's an inner voyage, which includes 
every other aspect of our life. And of course, I'm, I'd like to emphasize that this evening. Um, and we don't necessarily want to go on that voyage. We want to go on it a little bit. You know, notice a few little personal flaws here and there. <laughs> That's good enough. I'm OK enough. You know, I don't have to be perfect. What is emptiness and not self? What do I? It sounds weird to me. I think I'll just stick around. I've seen a few things that are off in me. I can come home, tell people about it. Um, so the, the emphasis is on uh, looking into your own mind. Not now, in, on a retreat, we give an ample opportunity to do that in a, in a very simplified form, the sitting and the silence and these uh, periods of extended sittings and so forth. But it doesn't end there. It didn't begin there, and it doesn't end there, because the mind is something that can be known anywhere, anytime, any place. if you're interested. Now, if you read every book ever written about the Buddha and all the suttas, I mean, the discourses of the Buddha, as far as we know, um, but you don't understand your own mind, you won't really understand what the Buddha is getting at. You do need a of some basic principles. And then the emphasis is of necessity on self-understanding, which requires courage, which requires humility, because when you start to really look, in, look into yourself, not just uh, on your cushion, but everywhere, uh, you may see some things you don't like. There may be some painful revelations. There may be some cherished images or notions that are unexamined about who you are, and they get broken into pieces. So you have to have a strong stomach, too. But um, if you're willing to undergo that, obviously I think so. It's worth it. But you shouldn't trust me or Michael, because we're in the business. This is what we do. So of course we think that. But how are you going to find out if we're just selling you a bill of goods, or if we're telling you the truth? You have to start looking into your own mind. You've already been doing it. Is it something that makes a difference? Can it help living? OK. Um, the mind itself is the Buddha. Let's go from something that sounds like it might be profound to something that sounds rather irrelevant. What is all this fuss about yogi jobs? Why do, why do we make a strong case that you take what you're given, whatever job you've been assigned, and it's random, unless you have a medical reason? Now, always some people, uh, you don't, I'm not, there's not going to be a show of hands or anything of that sort, but you don't like the job that you got. Well, let me uh, tell you why we do that. A little bit of historical perspective uh, this evening, uh, history of why we do that, but in the larger context of history of the Dharma as it moved from India throughout uh, the Asian world. I was fortunate. My very first teacher was uh, an Indian man named Krishnamurti, J. Krishnamurti. And for him, uh, of course, he sat and he included that as vital. He didn't promote it because he felt people were getting fixated on it, but he did. And 
His emphasis was on life as, as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, which is non-fragmented. That is, there's nothing that's unworthy of our attention. There's nothing that's trivial. Because uh, life itself is the great teacher. The lessons are pouring out. All you have to do is live and pay attention. There are lessons coming at us from externally. You see a leaf fall. Some people have gotten enlightened just seeing a leaf fall. Should we all just next fall run and just watch leaves and we'll all get enlightened? Probably not. It has to do with how ripe the mind was for that person. And there's no particular experience that produces a particular result. So it's all about inner refinement. Uh, in a retreat, in meditation, what we're, this is doing for all of us, it's an invitation to open the door into ourselves and to learn about our relationship to the world, to life. You can't really do that with, and leave yourself out. How could you do it? You can do that by reading books. You can get a PhD in not knowing about yourself. I can testify. Where's the Bible? Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> Uh, at any rate, for me, it was assumed that a meditative life, and right off the fir very first instruction I was given, was to pay attention to how I lived. So it wasn't just about sitting. And when I, I kept asking about sitting, I spent about a week with him when I first met him. I didn't know who he was. Uh, and he didn't answer until it was almost time for us to go separate ways. And we were taking a walk in a wooded area near where we we're spending some time. And he said, just sit down. Uh, we sat down on the ground. And um, there were some plants and trees and flowers and so forth. And he said, let's take a few minutes. Just pay attention and see if you could pick anything out. Could be a, a leaf, a flower, a plant, uh, anything, bark of a tree. And see if you could just, in a relaxed way, attend to it without naming it, explaining it. Uh, and sit when the, if the mind wandered, just come back and look at it as if for the first time. And when we sat there in silence, I was a little uncomfortable doing it. And at first, it felt like a waste of time. And then little by little, I, I don't recall exactly, it might have been a leaf, whatever it was, suddenly this very ordinary expression of nature, which of course we see all the time, uh, became something that was quite moving. I was very touched by it. I started to see all kinds of aspects of, not in thought, but just looking at it. Um, and then when it was over, uh, he said, well, how was it? I said, wow. I thought it was, couldn't understand why you called this meditation, but it became very interesting just really looking at the, it was a leaf, let's say, for the moment. And the more I saw it, the more I started to, something happened inside of me. I felt connected to it. I didn't have a position that I should be. We are all one or something of that sort. There was no ecology movement then. So it was just a leaf, for goodness sakes. And then he said, OK, you wanted to know how to meditate? You were just looking at that leaf? It seemed worthwhile, right? I said, oh, yeah. I said, OK, now go back to your room uh, and sit. Close your eyes, sit, and look at your mind same way. That's it. That's meditation. Have a good life. <laughs> But there was a lot of truth in it. 
Okay, so this yogi's job stuff, there's always resistance to it. Um, and I learned this, here's the his history of it here, because uh, I won't go into all the details of it. There, there's an oral surgeon and uh, uh, ex-CEO of a very, very prominent company who have become mythical figures, because I always talk about how they handle cleaning the bathroom. Both despised the yogi job, and they did it. Okay. Um, I was in Zen for 10 years, and the, the approach there very much uh, also uh, sees labor as part of practice, physical labor. So I assume that's what went on here. In the first years that I was teaching here, it never occurred to me uh, that people had a choice in what job they picked. One time, I was leading a routine. I came up much earlier than usual. I saw a lot of familiar yogis. And I said, oh, uh, how come you're here so early? And one was very honest. He said, oh, we get here a few hours earlier so we can get the soft jobs. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, for example, I got dusting the library, dusting the books off in the library. And uh, then went into a whole long, uh, and so what would, what would you not want to get? Oh, pots, dishes. There was no dishwashing machine then. And I realized that there was a bunch of people who were coming earlier than they needed to just to get soft jobs, which would be less time consuming. And then there'd be others who didn't unknowingly wind up like in the boiler room, you know, <laughs> And some those old those ships, you know, in the galley, <laughs> galley slaves, you know, uh, hours while their friends are having a nice walk in the, in the woods. Um, and so I realized uh, the next time, because it was a little late for that, we changed it. And since then. I don't think other teachers do it, but I don't know. That's not my business. I just know how I want to do it. And Michael and I see eye to eye on this. So that whatever job you get, if you like it, great. We're not trying to torture you. It's not intentional. Uh, and if you don't like it, frankly, it's much more valuable. I asked you, if you have a job, your yogi job, and there was some not so either disapproving of it or putting up with it, grow, sort of coping, Often that's what people do, dutifully coping, to be what is known as, quotes, a good yogi. That's not exactly practice. It's putting up with it and getting through it. You might as well be in the army. You've given a lot of jobs there, you do it too. Because at a certain point you learn. You do that or it's worse. Well, here we don't have that kind of punishment. At any rate, uh, we do it because it flushes out. It helped, the, the job itself can teach you about yourself. That's what I meant. The lessons in life are everywhere. And if you get vacuuming and you hated vacuuming because your mommy made you do it, and you feel all this revulsion and resistance, that gives you an opportunity to free yourself from childhood wound that's enslaving you. So isn't that a wonderful opportunity? We're not sadists. We're here to get free. The Buddha talks about uh, practice in some, there are some short statements about it. The practice of, liber of liberation through not clinging, non-clinging. Okay, there was an oral surgeon. This is, he's become a mythical character. I may be blowing it up by now because every, I always tell it. Those of you who have heard it can doze off or fantasize or something, whatever. 
you have those little things that you know that you can hardly see, little cell phones. And all. Um, at any rate, he refused. He he drew just by, he got toilets cleaning the toilet, a toilet, and he just was adamant. He refused to do it, and the staff tried to, in a nice way, tell him how this was part of the way the retreats were run, and it was a normal part of the practice, and the teachers wanted it this way, and so forth. This was some years ago. And he still said, I'm not doing it. So um, uh, they sent him up to, for me to speak to him about it. So I also tried to be nice. And I said, look, this is as valuable a part of practice as sitting and walking. We really value uh, each. And, and I emphasized something much more accessible to keep the center clean and you know, it needs to be run and maintained and so forth. That wasn't too convincing. And then I, I moved to make it a little bit more, moved it to an interior part of the reasoning. I said, it gives you an opportunity to find out about yourself. And then he went, he, he just couldn't believe it. He said, look, I'm an oral surgeon. I've spent years getting my degree. I find, I, to me, it's degrading to think, even think of cleaning a toilet. I said, I didn't do all those years of education, come up here and clean a toilet. And some people feel, I've been working all week. What do I need to come up here? This is, I should just be able to just sit and walk. Any of you feel that way? Well, that's true. Maybe you have a hard job, and you don't want to work when you get up here. But this is different. And I hope by the end of this talk, we can at least hint at why it is. So that you'll be, you, won't, you can't wait to get to your yogi job tomorrow. <laughs> okay. So I said, look, um, you have to do it. It's, uh, there are no exceptions unless there's a medical reason, is there? He said, no. He said, you can't be serious. I said, no, I really am. And I, and I was. I meant it. I said, you mean if I don't do it, I have to leave the retreat? And I said, yes. And he looked at me. It was sort of like it was like a chicken game. You know, like, it's your move now, Mr. Big Shot. And I sincerely meant it. I said, look, if I do this, then everyone is going to have start having choices again, and we'll be in big trouble. But I said, it's really valuable. I think the more we speak, the more I realize you should be doing it. So finally, begrudgingly, he did it. And we, it, was, it was very painful for him. Uh, but what came out of it, he checked in with me sometimes, and uh, both the notes and also we got to speak. In a, and he reported, honestly, uh, how, uh, how he was re revolted by doing it. And finally, it started to bring up uh, images of himself as uh, an oral surgeon and how important that was for him. In the Buddha's teaching, in terms of non-clinging, liberation through non-clinging, one of the most difficult areas where clinging is so hard to, to put an end to is views and opinions. So he had a view of himself, very hard to let go of it. And don't we all, we have self-images which are conclusions about ourselves. Some of them are very negative, and we hold on to them anyway. Some of them are wonderful. We've worked really hard to get it. Years of hard work, study, etc. We've gotten rewarded for it. Uh, and in the practice, they're all limitations on freedom. Not, it's not freedom. It's better than uh, feeling completely lost, I suppose, unless the lost quality leads to some place uh, that enables you to do something about it. Um, 
to his credit, uh, he, st he started to see how invested he was in this way of looking at himself and what a price he was paying. Uh, and by the end of it, he was okay with it. And um, so it's, it can teach you a lot. There are a lot of stories like this. I won't go into all of them. I won't go into any more of them. But now, is it just a case of uh, coping, or is it a case of being the well-adjusted worker? I mean, after all, hey, maybe this mindfulness meditation, let's bring it to GM and all these other plans so we can have happy workers. You know, if they're doing methodical work, repetitive work, that's boring, we'll teach them Vipassana and they'll be happy, smiling workers, better adjusted to their job. Um, a lot of what goes on is coping. This is not coping. It's opening up to, you know how we've been emphasizing allowing and receiving? We've started with something relatively simple, relatively, like the breath. We're trying to learn how to be attentive no matter what turns up for us. The Buddha mastered come what may seeing. It's one of the epithets for the Buddha. So we don't, some breaths are easy to follow. Some breaths are difficult. But that's nothing compared to if you have what this gentleman had. But it's the same principle. How can you be free if you're tyrannized? And we tend to impute the problems that we have externally. We are very, it's much easier to criticize the world and the people in the world than ourselves. It's much easier to see the faults in others than in ourselves. Haven't you, don't you think there's a little bit of truth in that? Here we're reversing the process. Fine. The world is where everything you say is true, but you're part of that world. Can you take a look at yourself? And I think, I hope that some or all of us know that that's part of why you're here, that you care about the quality of your life. We wouldn't be here. There are other places to be, more fun places, health spas, and you could get massage and hot tub and who knows what else. And here, sit, walk, sit, and walk, do your vacuum and be quiet. Uh, because we're being given an opportunity to come, it's a head-on collision between ourselves and ourselves. The suffering's not coming from the outside. Sometimes there's pain from the outside. There's discomfort, there's exhaustion. But finally, the, the, the real suffering that the Buddha's concerned about is from the inside. Moreover, as more and more we learn the art of receiving this fully, without judging it, without interpreting it, without grasping or pushing away, just to see it, the way a mirror reflects, the way a, a photographic plate just registers. The more we learn how to do that, uh, we start to, uh, a term I use a lot is what is. What is is simply the way it is. You might hear, it could also be here and now, that term is. It's also just this. In Zen, they use that term a lot, just this. It's the, the fact of this moment. It's this way. Each, it's, and it, right now, your experience is a certain way for you. Your body is a certain way. The breath is a certain way. How you're receiving these words are a certain way. It's just this in a moment. And it can change from moment to moment. It's just this. 
Okay? And more and more, our practice is to encourage you to more and more be with just this, whether it's wonderful, horrible, or neither. Whereas the mind's preference is to be not in what is, but in what used to be or what should be. Particularly what we can become. Let's say in the context of a meditation retreat, uh, the Buddha talked about a number of of, uh, the cravings and attachments, the clinging. And one that he talked about was the craving to become. Hmm, bhavatanha, what is that? Some of the attachments are so obvious, you know, nice sensory delights, good tastes, good sounds, and so forth. But craving to become, hmm, not sure what that is. Uh, it has everything to do with somehow wherever we are, however we, we, whoever we're with, wherever we're living, even in a given moment in a sitting, it's not good enough. There's always some place better that I can get to if you tell me what to do so I can get there. And then I'll really be happy forever after. It's the Hollywood ending thing, only it's moment to moment. And there's suffering involved because somehow wherever we are is never fully experienced because we're always on the way to some place that our mind has made up. Enlightenment. Don't you want to get enlightened? I've asked people, I want to get enlightened. I said, well, what is enlightenment? I don't know. So what? We want something we don't even know what it is. What good is that? So this is, to me, I prefer the term awakening. I think the Buddha is known as someone who is fully awake. And so awakening to me is closer in the English language. Um, And we're practicing being awake from moment to moment. We have a moment where we wake up to a breath, to a step, to a bite of food, to whatever our job is, etc. And then we fall asleep again. Uh, We see with ordinary eyes, judging, preferring, getting caught, and then suddenly we wake up. We're learning how to see with what is called the wisdom eye. The wisdom eye sees, first of all, it's an interior looking. And again, it takes, I would say, courage and humility to be willing to look inside, because that's the source, not only of the difficulty, but of the greatest riches. I don't, here, I don't mean financial. Actually, all spiritual traditions have different language. But in this tradition, it's an interior journey. And it's possible by watching what we think is the main show, which is the psyche, the play of all the different moods and likes and dislikes and conflicts and aspirations and yearnings and I'm happy, I'm miserable, and so forth. We're trying to fix that. And by watching it, when you pay attention to what is, you go beyond what is. Have you seen that sometimes when, when you're totally with something, some, suddenly it changes. You're not trying to change it. So the journey of seeing isn't passive, fatalistic, uh, world just walk all over me, because seeing sets in motion a dynamic energy that moves us internally. And what is being said is that once you start to more and more be with what is, you get, you transcend what is. And you'll find that what we call the mind is vast, vast. It's a a world to be explored, and the less I say about it, the better.
The Buddha didn't talk about it too much, except he said the original nature of the mind is luminescent. The Tibetans talk about it much more, certain schools. Some Zen schools talk about it. It can be called Buddha nature, original nature, uh, the na nature of mind, the essence, and so forth. If you throw the words out, um, we're operating in a very small realm that we think is the whole thing. It's an enclosure created by the psyche. So if you are cleaning a toilet and hate it, it's flushing out something that is part. These are some of the bonds that are enslaving you. It's showing you. It's not about the toilet. It's about you. The toilet is just pointing to consciousness, whatever it is you have, whatever is happening to us. Now, it isn't just adjustment. For example, let's say you hear these things. Well, OK, I got vacuuming. I'm not crazy about it. I don't hate it. But uh, you, know, you do a creditable job, and you're kind of present with it. Um, you don't like it too much, but you don't make a big fuss over it, and you get through it and the floor is clean and so forth. But when we're fully attentive, and if we have resistance, a reaction, let's say, whatever it is, the awareness, something happens when, it, when the energy of seeing meets the energy of resistance. And something happens, and it changes. And it takes us deeper, deeper in an interior way. We begin to see that there's more to us humans than we thought. Look, we, we know that we're only using a small portion of the brain. We've known that for some time. Now we're really finding out that there's huge potential in us humans. Each one of us has this capacity to flower. And I'm not, it's not some uh, mumbo-jumbo, new age, Hollywood, happy ending. Um, those who've been meditating for a while, if you come back, you must have tasted something that you didn't know was there. There's just, it's innate. It's inherent in being human. Everyone in this hall has it. So uh, life itself is the great teacher in the sense, in addition to the obvious reason that life is here to be lived. Life is here also to set us free. And there's a saying that I like very much, which sums up everything I've said so far. A bad situation is a good situation. So we're weird. The Dharma way of looking at things is different. The eye of wisdom welcomes seeing hang-ups, welcomes seeing fears, loneliness, and so forth. Not because it's so great. Wow, wonderful, I feel bored to death. No, because it's an opportunity to get free. There's so much energy held, trapped, imprisoned in all these, all these knots of uh, tension that uh, make up human life conflicts and a vexation of all sorts. And as we see it, uh, the knots start to untie themselves. The powerful mental poisons that color the mind so much start to lose their potency. And we find out that all along, everything is fine. The happiness I'm talking about is not something we cultivate. It's not something you import from India. It's something that's part of being a human being. In India, ancient India, every culture has its own interests. The genius, this is way before the Buddha, before Vedanta, thousands of years ago. The passion there was to find out, what is, what is this? What's going on here? What does it mean to be a human being? How am I to live? How is one to live? 
And so it's a question that every, each one of us faces. Socrates made it very, very clear. How, how is one to live? This is a big question, and it keeps changing. You don't get one solution. OK, so um, if you approach whatever uh, life presents us with here, life on this retreat, Uh, with this attitude, uh, there's no difference in this sense in being here and when we go home. Here's what one of the main underlying reasons why there's such an emphasis. Um, <clears throat> there have always been lay people who've, who've practiced with great sincerity and depth. They always have been. But the, made, the majority of, if you read the journey, if you see the journey historically, uh, what you see of, of the Buddha Dharma moving through Asia is you see it went through lots of changes, but basically it's been monastic. And this is not to disparage that at all. It's just that the fact seems to be that something is going on in the modern world where people like ourselves, here we are. We're not monastic. Some of you may have been or may decide to be, become monks or nuns, fine. But right now you don't appear to be. Okay. So we need a practice that's robust, that has real vitality, that isn't a kind of dharma light, L-I-T-E, that is kind of, so we're neither monks or nuns, nor are we lay people. We're afraid of work and relationship, but we also don't want to shave our heads and put on those robes and eat one meal a day. But then again, I don't want to do this, but I don't want to do that. We're afraid of living. We're afraid of dying. It's all the same thing. But the, I'm starting with a fact. It's not an ideology. The fact is, there seems to be a lot of energy. This center, what did it, what did it, my goodness, I've been here almost since the beginning. And they're springing up everywhere. And a lot of it, the energy is lay people. People like ourselves, who have jobs, who are going to school, who have been to school, who uh, want to get in relationship, or want to get out of relationship, you know, who have families or don't want family. So this isn't prescribing how you're supposed to live, but it's an encouragement for you to examine how you live. And wisdom is learning how to live. In the Buddhist approach, there are guidelines. Skillful living, wise living, is a form of intelligence. It's intelligent living. It's not, it's not the kind of intelligence that gets us good scores on tests and gets us into good colleges, which is also valuable. It's not rational, logical deductive and so forth, or, the, or information. Uh, when the mind becomes silent, you will find you have access. It act, this silence activates a form of intelligence that's just there. I don't know why, but you'll find that compassion, what we call compassion, what we call wisdom, when you start to see things, there are fewer conflicts. Everything becomes obvious when the mind becomes clear, or, or more obvious. You have fewer conflicts. Life becomes easier to live. There's some kind of intelligence that we've not defined intelligence intelligently. We've limited it to rational, which is precious and beautiful. But there's another form which this is about. Now, uh, if we don't learn 
how to use the content of our life as it is. That is, when we leave here, uh, the, the language that exists in a lot of Dharma scenes is when the retreat ends, now we're going back to the real world. Well, what is this world? Is this Disneyland? Uh, is this some uh, Hollywood stage set? This is, it's, there's no place to escape life. It's all daily living. We, we can define it in a certain way. This is an invention, a contrivance. Oh, no, this is spiritual. I come up time as a spiritual. Sure, okay, you make spiritual have spiritual. But in China and then in Japan and then in Korea and so forth, they start to see the, the, the necessity of a practice that um, included washing the dishes, cooking, everything. Now, if you read the literature, it's all there in, a, in seed form. But because it's monastic, there isn't enough help, in my opinion, about, for example, human relationship, which is the hardest one for us humans. We just do not know how to live with each other. The evidence is overwhelming. The extreme is called war, incessant. Every war is the war to end all wars. Well, what do you see? Do you see a different world than I do? So we have peace treaties and conferences, and, and then there are new alliances based on self-interest. And then when, they, when the self-interest isn't there, they collapse, and other alliances spring up which are based on self-interest. So there's an internal change that's missing. We put so much energy into mastering the, mastering the external world. So we, we're going to the moon and beyond, and we don't understand ourselves. Now, a prerequisite is the ability to pay attention. The learning comes from that ability to pay attention. We're learning it with the breathing, with walking. That's all Michael and I have been encouraging us all to do since we've gotten here, and most of you know that. Out of that comes the learning that sets us free. Now, in our culture, it seems that we have to look. Many people, who, having lived in monasteries, different kinds, many people who, uh, who take the monastic path, the message is, whoa, it's nuts out there. Get me out of here. And you, and you just you live in a monastery or a retreat center. And if that's right for you, fine. But most of us, we come for a retreat maybe once a year, twice a year, and then we go home. And if we see that as inferior to coming up here, then nothing much is going to change, in my opinion. I've seen it. So what is being suggested is to see life as a whole, not fragmented that it's all valuable, it's all dharma, it's all, if you want to use the word, I don't like it, spiritual, whatever that means. I know it's a good word, that person's very spiritual, all. Oh. Not very spiritual, yeah. I'd like to go out with him, but he's not spiritual. Oh, forget it then, forget it. But he's very kind, generous, and very loving, and we laugh a lot, and we have a good time, but he's not spiritual, forget it. He's not spiritual. Uh, so we face this challenge, and I think we, uh, we'll go into that a bit more uh, towards the end of the retreat. I don't want get, to get the mind to go home yet. But even here, there are relationships, aren't there? Even if we're not speaking. Haven't you been sizing each other up? <laughs> Come on. 
You don't like certain people's outfits, their socks don't match. It's wintertime. What are you wearing that? Don't, this guy doesn't even know how to keep out of the rain, for goodness sakes. Okay. So, and their affections developing. I mean, it's all a fantasy. It's not real, but it's there. You're already, some of you are married. I hope you're having, <laughs> hope you're having a good life. When the retreat ends, you'll get divorced when you, when you meet each other, when you actually talk to each other because the person is who you made them up to be, and they just turn out to be who they are. Sorry. Okay, so we're trying in a small way to contribute to a frame of reference, a way of looking at life so that we value. We, we value life, not just, and we don't break it up into a piece, this is mundane and cute, but not all that valuable, and this is holy. In this sense, everything's holy, depending on how you relate to it. It's not in the thing. Now, we also face problems. Here we are trying to attend. And I won't go too, too much over, just a minute or two. Not only are we, do we have the obstacle of relationship and work, and now difficult economic times, there's always something, isn't there? But here's something from the Wall Street Journal, and this is 2003. Whatever they're saying has been eclipsed. It's now 2011. This is, this is old news. It's dated, but it still has something to teach us. And it's called, Technology Has Us So Plugged Into Data, We Have Turned Off. Okay, this is what it says. A new plague of inattention is spreading. It's called surfer's voice, a habit of half-heartedly talking to someone on the telephone while simultaneously surfing the web, reading emails, or trading instant messages. On one end of the phone is an, annoyed, is an annoyed colleague or family member discussing an important topic. On the other end, a party puts on a meager soundtrack of knowing participation. Okay, mm-hmm, right, okay. It is punctuated with surreptitious tapping of a keyboard. The brainy people who study these things, this came out of research, call this phenomena absent presence. Can you beat that one? <laughs> absent presence. I'm not sure I know it. Well, okay, that's their name for it. For years, researchers have discussed how cell phones have trampled over the once communal public space of sidewalks and restaurants. The idea is that we may be physically on a street corner, but our distracted minds are not. We do little bits of everything and none well. Now, I don't feel that pessimistic. I think now there is a tremendous uh, enthusiasm about the, all these gadgets, and they are brilliant, beyond brilliant. So, and it's obvious they are. And I, I think that if we're fortunate, but it isn't just luck, here, like in everything else, some wisdom is needed, we'll put it in its place. The technology is brilliant. It can be very, very helpful. But right now, it seems that we're in the honeymoon phase, unless it just keeps being like this, and we prefer talking to a machine. Now, this is dated, because here we have one sincere person giving, the, giving their heart, you know, still, and the other person's going, uh-huh, uh-huh, and, and texting. Okay, but now they're both doing it to each other. Okay, and so you see what we're up against. Just before coming up here, I was watching CNN, and 
I was looking at, and this has happened to me many times. I, it, it's often amusing and sometimes. So there's the main thing. It was, it was, about, um, it was about Egypt. And so you had a certain scene going on in Egypt. And then it, as if that wasn't enough, it was quite dramatic. In the upper right-hand corner is someone also telling you other things that are going on in another part of Cairo. Okay? And I, maybe that's not enough. Then there's scrawl going around it, which has nothing to do with any of this. And so if, the, if your attention flags for a second to either the, the general talking on the corner or some correspondent or the main thing you're watching, ah, this is boring. You go to the scroll. And Jared said, and the stock market said, you know, and then just you're getting involved in the scroll. Forget about the pictures. They, you heard it already. How many times are we going to hear what Sarah Palin had to say or whoever it is? Suddenly you're getting involved in the scroll, and it's cut off in the middle of a sentence because there's an advertising. So then you mute the advertising, but the scroll is cut out too, so you're stuck with what? Yourself. <laughs> Breathe. Use conscious breath then. And then when it stops, push the button. But do you see what we're up against? Okay, um, somehow we're not allowed, well, it's just, uh, I don't have to explain, do I? <laughs> so you come here, those of you who are new, and you say, I don't know, I'm having a difficult time following the breath. Yeah. But look, the ancients did too. That was very reassuring for me. <laughs> I remember reading texts of a thousand years where people in much simpler times in ancient India uh, they also had minds that were wild to begin with. Mind, you can learn. We humans have this remarkable capacity to learn. So that's what we're here for. Don't be discouraged. We're here to learn. But we have, the world we live in is exactly the way it is. Let me uh, end this, whatever it was, <laughs> with something that's perhaps relevant and a little bit encouraging. I hope. Uh, this comes from a very great Chinese master named Wu Men, a great Chan master. Chan is what became Zen in Japan. 10,000 10, flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. So whether it's cold out there or warm out there, global warming, not global warming, roads are bad, the infrastructure is falling apart, all that, take care of your mind so you're not so dependent on conditions being the only, in other words, not just the stock market, it's our, our state of mind goes up and down with conditions. We're learning to travel inwardly to a place that isn't dependent on conditions. It's not dependent on conditions. So let's see, by the time we leave here, this will be the best season for all of us. That's my wish at any rate. Okie dokie. <laughs> Some walking, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.